You are listening to the Homeland Heroes Salute, sharing stories to heal and honor our heroes. This podcast is brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation and produced by DairyCam. This podcast sometimes deals with mature content that may not be suitable for a younger audience and could be triggering for some individuals. Discretion is advised. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. No views expressed in this podcast represent any of the uniform services, the Homeland Heroes Foundation, Dairy Cam, or any other organization. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Homeland Heroes Salute. My name is Alyssa, and today we have a special guest host with us. You may recognize his voice from our second series of episodes, Arthur Briggs. Hi, Art. Thank you for joining us today. We're excited to have you on again. Great to be with you, Alyssa. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Art and I are joined today by David Voigt. Hi, David. How are you today? Good. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for joining us. Um, now, you've shared with us a little bit of your back, your, your personal information with backstory and whatnot. Um, can you please share with the audience who you are, um, what branch of the service you are in, um, your rank, and any fun facts you'd like to share about yourself? Sure. My name is David Voigt. I'm a chief warrant officer. I work for the New Hampshire Army National Guard, been in over 20 years now. Uh, my background is I've been a maintenance working at uh, different dealerships throughout the state for the last, geez, uh, going on 35 years. Awesome. Uh, yeah. It looks like some of your hobbies are working on older cars, so you're probably in the right <laughs> yep. I have, yeah, I've been a maintenance uh, mechanic my whole life. Uh, right now I'm restoring an old 63 Chevy pickup truck. Oh, uh, awesome. and, and I like helping uh, family and friends fixing their cars as much as I can. Cool. Um, so, yeah. So what years um, did you serve? So I've been in since 1998. Uh, I've been deployed three years, uh, three different times, I should say. Uh, back in 2003 to 2005, I spent uh, over in Iraq uh, for Iraqi freedom. 2010 to 2011, I was in Kuwait under, uh, I believe it was called New Dawn. And then uh, again, in 2015, 2016, I went to UAE, United Arab Emirates, under Operation New, uh, New Dawn. And, uh, yeah, and I'm still serving. I'm hoping to get out this year. Nice. So you're talking about retiring? I am. Yeah. So you're not necessarily getting out, but you're going to, you're going to hit the eject button with uh, full military honors. Uh, well done. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, that was my goal. I, I didn't think I was going to stay in the full 20 years. I, I did it for the college and uh some other reasons and i figured i'd do you know five or six years my first contract and i ended up staying this 20 plus years now and yeah i got my 20 year letter and it's hanging on the wall and i'm proud of it yeah congratulations that's awesome so 1998 bill clinton is the president and you are i'm, I'm assuming 18 19 years old uh 28 years old ah so you so you joined as a 28 year old man and what was going on what made you want to join the national guard uh my best friend was the head of recruiting up here in new hampshire i went through my first divorce and uh i was just at a low point in my life and 
I needed to do a drastic change. So my friend, uh, Mike told me to come and join the military. And I literally joined the day after mother's day. And I was six weeks later, I was in Fort Sill, Oklahoma for my basic and AIT. <laughs> that's uh, that's outstanding for us. So what a big difference from New Hampshire. So divorced, divorcing, and your best friend got you, right? Like, hey, do me a favor, do me a solid, join the National Guard. Uh, what yes. was what was it like? Uh, you needed a, you needed a huge change. What was it like as a 28 year old? So that's a different perspective. Uh, most most people are coming in at 17, 18, 19 years old. So 28, you're kind of set in your ways. You have your own uh, your, your own idea of who you are and what life should be. What was it like going uh, leaving New Hampshire, leaving what you, you've known, and heading to Fort Sill? Well, uh, like you said, uh, being 28 years old, it was a culture shock um, having a 22-year-old, you know, drill sergeant basically yelling in your face and there's nothing you could do about it because it's all a head game going to basic. And But after the first week there, they treated me because uh, I was the oldest person there. They treated me, They some of the people called me grandpa at 28 years old. And I didn't get any special, uh, you know, privileges or anything. They treated me the same as everyone else, but they looked at me to uh, guide the uh, younger enlisted people that were in, because like you said, they were between the ages of 17 and 21. Uh, so yeah, it was a, it was a culture shock. Um, you know, going from New Hampshire to Fort Sill, I've been across, I've been across United States. So I've been to, you know, warmer climates and stuff. So that, that didn't have any effect with me. No, that's nice. That's nice. So, uh, helping us understand what it's like, uh, you fly out of New Hampshire, your recruiter helps you on the bus plane, you land. What was it like? Uh, do you remember? Do you recall what it was like when you when you got to Fort Sill? What was your entrance uh, into the National Guard life? So uh, most of the people out of New Hampshire and Massachusetts go out of Boston, out of the MEPS in Boston. It's a medical facility that does all the paperwork and you swear in down there. And uh, they the the recruiter doesn't bring you to the bus. Uh, you're, you're down at the maps the night before you fly out, and they have a drill sergeant down there that tells you what's going to happen. So we all got on a bus, went to Logan Airport. Uh, they walked us in the back, literally the back door, and we got, all got on a plane because there was a half of us went to Fort Sill and half half the other people because there's five different uh, basic training sites in the United States. Uh, and then the other half went to, uh, I think it was Fort Jackson, but the people that went to Fort Sill, like I said, I was the oldest person. So that drill sergeant gave me that packet for all the, all the members that were going to Fort Sill. We land there and it was a reception thing. And, and it's almost like what you see on the TV with the drill sergeant walking on the bus saying this, you know, say your goodbyes now, cause you're going to change. Uh, but. I got there. I was a, I was in the like the, one of the front seats. I handed the packet over, and we all got out off the bus in Fort Sill. We went through this in process uh, period, doing medical, making sure we are who we are, medical, and then 
once the second day we were there, we got uniforms. So all our civilian clothes, our regular jeans and T-shirts, we put that in a duffel bag and that gets locked up. So you don't see your stuff until the end of basic training. Uh, but they gave us the uniforms and the boots and everything. And then for about four days, uh, we weren't assigned to a unit yet, a basic training unit, uh, until the, all the other recruits come from across the, the states. And for about four days, we had a uh, drill sergeant explaining to us what's going to happen on uh, just say next Monday and they walked us through it. And so we knew what to expect. And, wh and what was that? What was, what was the drill sergeant telling you and, and what, uh, what ex actually? Yeah. yeah. Basically what time we're going to be getting up, what our schedules were, uh, you know, what to expect, you know, once we got assigned to a unit there, uh, it's just like this, what you see in the picture, you got to carry both your duffel bags with all the clothes they give you uh, into a spot. And they're telling you to stand in a straight line. And a lot of people, even myself, has never stood in a straight line uh, side by side and, you know, look forward by holding and holding the two bags at the same time. And people were dropping them and the drill sergeant would go over and yell at them, you know, just yelling as fast as they can and you're not understanding what they're saying, you know, just to see what your emotions and see if you can handle it. And then they, they sat us all down into our different groups, told us what the next nine weeks were going to be, what is expected, what time we're going to get up, what time's breakfast, what time's lunch, what time's dinner. Uh, they gave us basically, it was on the, on a billboard in the, uh, area where we were sleeping and it gave us our schedule for the whole nine weeks what to expect and we had to follow it you oh, know and you awesome. had the kids yeah you had the kids that like there's no smoke and there's no cell phones back then uh and the only day that you had to yourself is on sunday they had the church different services for the church where you'd go down to this auditorium and do the church services down there at different times. And if the people didn't go down to the church services, they would be back in the barracks, sweeping, mopping, cleaning. And that's your day to do laundry, cleaning, you know, making your bed, uh, cleaning your sheets and stuff. Right. So right. You, it was, it was, uh, it was a culture shock, but you know, I was 28 years old. So I took care, I had three kids at that time. And I was taking care of kids' laundry, so it's like, uh, you know, I knew I had to do it. Yeah, that's good. Uh, that's really good. So let me, uh, I got two things for that. Um, when you're talking about the first couple of nights, you're seasoned, you've been across the United States, you've met people from all walks of life, you're 28 years old, you have three kids of your own, and you're in the, the squad bay. And all of these kids just had their whole world. Uh, some of them never left their hometown, uh, flipped upside exactly. down. What was that like? What was it like for you? Uh, what do you think it was like for them? For them, I, a lot of them were scared. They didn't know what to do, what to think. They didn't have any friends there. Uh, you know, luckily I knew he wasn't in my platoon 
But I knew two people that from Massachusetts in New Hampshire that went down at the same time. They were at Port Still. They were at the other platoon um, in the next bay over from us. Some of these people came, you know, there was a guy from Texas, I remember this, uh, has never left his town. He grew up in his town, never left it, and he was afraid. You know, drill sergeants yelling, screaming, but, and we all talk to each other. It's a, it's literally telling them it's a head game. They're going to see how fast they can break you down, you know, and build your, and then build you back up to, you know, being a soldier and uh, being able to listen and listen clearly. That's good. That's good. So you found yourself coaching these young guys in, in that yes. moment. Yes, I did. I believe it. So I want to go, I want to take you back before basic training. You said you had three children and uh, you're 28 years old. You have three kids, you're going through a divorce and you're making this huge, uh, huge opportunity for yourself and, and really for your kids. What, what is it like to make that decision knowing you're going to be away uh, from your beloved children for nine weeks. What goes on in the the heart and the mind of you as a father? I was as a father, as you know, having my three kids, I was, I was scared to leave, but I knew it was the right thing because I was starting to go down the, the wrong road. And I knew if I joined the military after talking to, you know, my friend, Mike and uh, a couple other people that I knew that were in the military, it would be the best thing for me. And it, actually has turned uh my life around 110 percent uh so yes i was afraid i didn't know what to do what to think back then 20 over 20 years ago we didn't have cell phones like we do now where kids have phones it's like our day to call if we're if we had uh authorization to call was on sunday you know so i was hoping the the ex-wife was at home uh, I was hoping the kids were around when I tried calling because they can't call me. Uh, but they, the one nice thing is, you know, they do give you time to write letters. And I wrote letters and I got I got a couple letters from my kids. Uh, so it it puts that, you know, that feeling back in you that, okay, I'm doing the right thing. For sure. Um I, I can't imagine what it would be like to leave for basic training and leave three kids. And, and, and at the time you joined, you're right. There was no ability for you just to like shoot a text or a Facebook message or FaceTime. This is uh, the time where you had to go to a payphone and then use your calling card and, and hope somebody answered on the other side, or you leave a, a message on an answering machine. Some of the people listening might not even know what an answering machine is uh, because of the, the way the things have changed. Right. So exactly. You and you, you made mention of your life before, like, can you give us kind of a snapshot of what your childhood was like, what your young adult life was like, and, uh, you know, the town you grew up in and, and what, what do you think in your childhood and in your young adult life led you besides Mike, uh, to, to wanting to be a soldier in the United States national guard or the New well, Hampshire I national guard. Time. Yeah, I uh, I grew up in Massachusetts. My father uh, worked for the MBTA in Boston. And then on the side, he had a junkyard that I worked for. So I've been around cars my whole entire life. Uh, I'm one of five kids. I'm the middle. I'm a twin. Uh, 
and my life growing up was good. I met my uh, first wife in high school. We we're high school sweethearts, and actually, literally the year after I graduated, or six months after I graduated, she had uh, my daughter. And uh, so we were married for almost 10, uh, 10 years, but, you know, we grew up, didn't have a life or anything. Basically, what I'm, what I'm saying not having a life is we didn't have the chance to go out and potty like teenagers and college kids did. You know, I, grew, I got graduated high school. I had a full-time job, and I worked 50, 60 hours a week to take care of the, uh, the wife and the three kids have a place over a uh, roof over the head, a couple cars. And, you know, so her and I, we grew apart from each other. And I was just, uh, she was going out and I didn't like that. And, you know, it's just jealousy at that time, I will, I would say. And I was going down the bad, uh, bad, way of doing things. And I needed something to change my life. So I decided, you know, my father was in the Coast Guard during Vietnam. My uncle was a Green Beret. And then my friend Mike. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I chose that. It was either that or, you know, I was going to actually go and work on an oil rig with one of my friends and try to make some money that way. But that one, I'd be gone for a long time, six months at a time. And, you know, no communication. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to trying to think. Uh, so your uncle was a green so, beret. What, what does green beret mean yeah. for the people that don't understand the different colors of a beret? Uh, the green beret is like special forces for the army. Uh, he did it during Vietnam. So he he told me a lot of stuff and what he did, you know, like being a sniper and, you know, going and doing different things than just foot patrols and riding in a Humvee all in circles, you know, and stuff. He used to go him and his team and it's only three people and he never had to shave or anything. So it didn't even look like he was in the military. So he used to go do uh, stuff that, you know, people don't hear of, but growing up, he always told, you know, us, uh, his nephews, uh, some of the different things in the places he's gone. So that's one thing that, you know, I wanted to do when I was in high school, I actually was going to join the Marines and, uh, but come to find out my, my girlfriend at the time was pregnant right before we graduated. And, uh, so I decided I wasn't going to go in, you know, so I've always really wanted to be in the military. I just, didn't do it because I had my girlfriend was pregnant at the time and I had a kid on the way. So I decided I was going to stay home and take care of them. And then after I get divorced, it's like I needed to, I needed to do a change. So I was, you know, working at a dealership, same hours, same thing every day. I needed something to change and joining the military. I, like I said, I joined the military six weeks later. I was in Fort Hill, Oklahoma. Uh, I went up in the ranks very quick because of my age and my willingness of doing different things. I've been to 26 countries within uh, the Army National Guard. I've been to almost every state. 
uh, in the United States with them doing different little missions. You know, like we, the National Guard, uh, my first commander in chief is the governor. So like when we had the floods or the ice storms, we got activated to do stuff around the United States or around New Hampshire. Uh, like Katrina, when I got back from Iraq, I spent almost eight weeks down in Katrina helping them out. I've uh, volunteered to go to California for the uh, forest fires. I've gone, you know, I've been around every uh, different places. So the National Guard has taken me around everywhere, and I'm glad I joined. So I have a question for those who might not um, understand, I guess, the, the differences between yep. um each branch of the military, and this is kind of question, yep. I don't understand it. Um, yep. the National Guard, so I know, like you just said, the National Guard gets deployed kind of stateside, I guess, is what you would call it. Yep. Um, does that happen with other branches of the military, or is it strictly a national a thing just for the National Guard? So, so the National Guard, it's the Army National Guard and the Air National Guard. Okay. The National Guard, their first commander-in-chief is the governor. So they all the all the states have national guards in it. Uh, I'm not sure about the Air National Guard because I'm not in it, but uh, so they would get activated for state active duties first, okay. And if for deployments like when I went to Iraq, the president actually asks the governor if he could take their soldiers before. Oh. Uh, before actually de just deploying them, you know, the the governor or the president needs to make sure that that each state can still uh, afford to have their soldiers gone. Okay, because like I like I said, we had we haven't had forest fires here, but like California gets forest fires all the time. They use mm -hmm. the National Guard out there all the time for that. They're doing the border patrol in you know Arizona, California, New Mexico. Uh, we had the mudslides, we had the ice storms, we had that one tornado, uh, I forget what year that was, the tornado that went through up through Deerfield and Northwood. The National Guard, the state activated us to go help out for that. That's amazing. So, yeah. So the only, only people that can help uh, be deployed in the states to help the state is the National Guard and Reserve. You'll never see the governor calling the, the Marines or the Army to walk around the city helping out because they're, yep. federally, they're federally funded. And exactly, and, and to include the reserves. So uh, you're yep. absolutely right. You have your now six branches of the military to include the Space Force, but the Army, the Navy, the Marine Corps, the Coast Guard, uh, who did I forget, Air Force? In the in the uh, now the yeah. space force, right? So when you're talking yeah. about uh, the Marine Corps, how did I forget the Marine Corps? Anyway, <laughs> I don't even know how I messed that up. But those are all federal entities to include the reserves for each of those. You'll have the Marine Corps reserves, the Navy reserves, and the Army reserves. Those are all federally, and the National Guard is the state uh, arm of the military, and they are used for snow removal in certain states, for disaster relief in others, and uh, they are. They can be requested from the federal branch, and they had uh, a lot in OIF and OEF uh, to supplement a um, 
a depleted or a exhausted active force in Iraq and Afghanistan. So uh, it, it, it's really remarkable how our state agencies and federal agencies can work together when necessary uh, to to utilize all of our brothers and sisters in arms. Melissa, does that answer it well, or did you have another uh, secondary question? No, I think that answers it really well. It's something that I don't think I've really ever thought about, but I've always seen on TV in regards to um, like the floods in Houston or the the fires in California. So it's something that I think is it's it's there, but it's it's not there, not not well known. I guess. Yeah, what I always find impressive, uh, David, about National Guard uh, folks is is that you're living your normal life and then there's a wildfire in California or a hurricane in Louisiana or Florida. And all of a sudden, like, it's not like, hey, we can plan on this deployment coming up in a month. It's, hey, get your stuff ready. We've been activated. We're going to help folks. Yep. I've been uh, like the flood we had in uh, Gosstown and Keene and uh, out in that area. We got a call. I got a call. Well, we knew the floods were here and you're always on standby. We have to have a bag ready with the uniform, boots and all our gear is at the at the units. We keep them at all our regular gear, the army gear there. But we have to have a bag ready at all times with uniforms, boots, underwear, socks, uh, shaving kit, towel. So like when we had the floods, I got a call at six o'clock at night. I had to report to the armory I belonged to by eight o'clock for a, we were activated by the state to help out. So how does that you work? Know, all, yep, go how ahead. How does that work with employers? I know there's, um, like you can't get fired for saying, hey, the, Yep. The state just called me up, but how, how does that work? So when you're on the National Guard, uh, there's an organization out there called ESGR, Employer, uh, Employer Service. Uh, I, I'm not sure exactly which, what it is off the top of my head, but uh, they work with the employers across the state, okay, on uh, teaching them what we can and cannot do, okay? So when you when you're an employee and you're in the national guard you are required to give your employer your drill schedule what weekends we do the two weeks a year where we're going uh you have to give that to them as soon as you get it so usually we get it in september october time frame for the whole year from october 1st to september 30th of the next year so you're required by law to give them a copy of it and they know ahead of time, you know, because we do, a, we call them muters. Okay, we'll do a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, not just Friday and Saturday. We'll do a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And then two weeks, usually in the summertime, we'll go somewhere. So they know ahead of time. They And the employers know, you know, hopefully you have you, the employer you work for, you have a good relationship and you talk to them. And you tell them, hey, if there's a disaster, they could call me, okay? You're required, if you get called, to call your employer and tell them, hey, I've been activated for the National Guard, and as soon as I get my orders, I will send you a copy 
and that's pretty much how it works. Yeah, and and, and that's that's impressive enough. But what about relationships? That's got to be even more difficult. Like, yeah. hey, if my employer's mad at me, that's one thing. But uh, what, how did how does that affect your relationships, or how do you know it's affected others' relationships? Uh, it takes a toll on some families. Okay, like I said, uh, you know, I've my first wife. I've been divorced twice now, and my second wife, uh, we got divorced in 2016, right after I got back from my second deployment when I was married to her, you know, because I I spent, in the seven years I was with her, over three years I was gone. So it takes a toll on some families. Some families can work it out and, you know, you know, just work it out. And some just can't handle it, you know. So it does take a a big toll on families with uh, people being deployed and you know being activated or and stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. That that makes sense to to me. Yeah, just as as I'm thinking about that, you have children and you've done these like quick, rapid, like "Hey, get out of here!" deployments. If you don't mind it. Could you elaborate? Like, how how have your children uh, reacted, and and what is the difference that's made in their lives? So my kids are older now. So uh, you know, when my first deployment, my kids were still in high school, uh, in school ages. So, but I had a I'm going to say almost a month's notice. You know that I was being activated uh, to be deployed. So you got to uh, plan things out. You got to talk to the kids about it. Uh, My second deployment, I knew almost three months before. Uh, And then this last deployment in 2015, 16, I knew six months in advance. So I planned ahead of time. You know, I had my will. I've had my uh, power of attorney filled out. I talked to my ex-wife. I talked to my kids. And, you know, in 2015, we had cell phones. And when I was in UAE, I had a cell phone over there. And I got to call home, uh, you know, over there, it was like 10 o'clock at night for eight to seven o'clock in the morning when they were going to work. So I made it work. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good segue to um, end the first episode on and dive into episode two. Um, Thank you guys for joining. for the first part of Dave's story for part two and three, tune into the next few episodes of the Homeland Harris Salute. This podcast is brought to you by the Homeland Harris Foundation, an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members, veterans, and their families in their time of need. To learn more, visit homelandheroesfoundation.org. Thank you to our production team at DairyCam, creating connection through story for a better world. Learn more by visiting dairycam.org. Thank you for listening and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Harris Salute wherever you listen to podcasts.